0: Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are
1: you? Doing very uh, very well, Pete. How are you today?
0: Everything's good. Uh, Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a special episode on the novel coronavirus pandemic and its effect specifically on shoulder level surgery and surgical training. So we've invited a resident, a fellow, and a shoulder surgeon heavily involved with training residents and fellows to discuss how the pandemic has changed training and how this pandemic changes how what we do going forward. So first off, we have Dr. Jonah Davies. Jonah completed both Shoulder Amble and Orthopedic Traumatology Fellowships before joining the staff at Harvard University in Seattle, an area that's been particularly hard hit by COVID-19.
2: Jonah, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for
1: inviting me. Next, we have Dr. Stephen Jones, a third-year resident at the University of Colorado with a strong interest in shoulder and sports medicine. Steve went to medical school at Tulane. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
3: I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And then finally, we have Ben Zmiskowski. Uh, ben is currently a fellow in shoulder and surgery at Washington University in St. Louis, and he completed a residency at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia. Before that, Ben, how are you doing?
4: Doing great, Dr. Summers. Thanks uh, very much for having us on.
1: All right. So um, at this point, let's get started with um, with our questions for our panelists. And again, thank you all for joining us during what is certainly a very interesting time in training, being a resident, being a fellow, and being faculty who, uh, who trains trainees. So um, we'll start with uh, at, at the residency level. Steve, tell us, how is your program here at the University of Colorado? Um, how is the university managing the pandemic with regard to orthopedics and uh, residency and all that?
3: Yeah, of course, um, you know, just to start, this is all uncharted territory. Um, so it's it's hard to, um, you know, necessarily grade or quantify how we've been doing things because we don't have any standard to compare it to. But I would say that that we've done the best that we can um, to maximize um, our opportunities for training that we have. You know, the loss of all of the elective cases and the, the dramatic re- reduction in volume of, of even just ER consults. Um, obviously it's had a huge impact on our training and we've come up with you know creative ways to supplement our education and uh, specifically I'm at the VA currently and we've um, sort of set up these exercises for our interns where we take them through mock consults um, you know as if they're going to be second years or you know in in preparation for their um, for their second year rotations next year Um, and I think that's helped but it's hard to really say what the future will hold. I mean, if we go a full four months without elective cases, um, you know, will we have to do more time? I mean, no one knows, you know, no one can really predict this. And so I think, um, we're just doing the best we can. And we've been trying to maximize the, this, this free time and do a lot of, you know, ortho bullets questions and study and, and, uh, just read and, and make it worthwhile, but it's, but it's been a challenge. And again, without being able to compare this to any standard, it's hard to say how we're doing, but I think we're doing pretty well.
0: Well, Steve, I'm glad to hear you guys are holding up. It's um, such an interesting idea to run people through mock consults. It's always great to hear about a program kind of coming together to do what they can. Ben, how are you guys doing in fellowship? I remember every week of fellowship feeling it was such a valuable experience. It must be painful to lose some. What, what have you guys done since, since the, the ban on elective surgery and since the pandemic began?
4: So, yeah, certainly as each week goes by and each day, uh, missing more and more cases as a fellow is uh, very painful um since this started we have been doing some uh what we classify as urgent cases um so we've been trying to get as much out of those few cases as we possibly can um and that's included uh things like distal biceps ruptures um and acute rotator cuffs so just really going through the steps of each of those and making sure that i'm getting as much as possible um, from each case has, has really been i think the most important thing uh, the other thing that we've been doing to try to broaden our experiences, we've been continuing to do um, didactic lectures, um, although they've been done remotely um, through uh, Zoom. And it's been um, very fortunate that we've had other institutions like the Rothman Institute open up their didactic conferences as well. So I, we've joined in um, on those conferences um, for educational purposes.
1: Thanks, Ben. And uh, moving on to the faculty level, Joan, I'm sure trauma volume is down as people are doing less, uh, less things outside, hurting themselves less, although I'm sure it's not nothing. And of course, elective volume is down um, to nothing. What has changed for you at Harborview in terms of how you're doing things, how your day-to-day and week-to-week are going, especially from a trainee perspective, but also from a faculty perspective?
2: Yeah, so uh being in Seattle, we were one of the first regions really to to undergo any type of, you know, change in practice. So we very quickly uh decreased elective to down to close to zero and then officially zero uh, very early on. And so um we didn't know what the, you know, spectrum of the pandemic was going to look like at that point. So very quickly we reorganized our entire residency to have teams of residents so that we would not um either burn residents out or submit them to unnecessary risk. And so we uh, created teams of residents that would rotate in and out. um, And uh, in case anybody got sick, we had, you know, contingency plans, uh, but that meant that a lot of residents were at home. And so we had to quickly find ways to um, increase uh, or at least maintain some sort of teaching. And so we opened up all the local didactic sessions um, onto Zoom for the entire residency program, for instance, a sort of classic uh, component of Harborview View uh, teaching is the Fracture Conference that we have weekly, um, and we've opened this up to the entire residency. And so every Monday afternoon, instead of only having a handful of residents, you know, 10 or 12, we have all 40 residents of our program uh, join as well as other faculty. And so it's actually been very, um, uh, very beneficial to everybody. Um, and and with regards to other types of training, so um, you know, junior residents are still in the hospital on different services. They some have been reaffected to general surgery or to medicine, um, but they're still in the hospital, one week on, one week off. And uh, we've made available uh, various um, trainings um, modules of virtual reality and simulators. Uh, in the hospital in, in separate areas so that they could maintain social distancing but still have access to those and so uh, still at least uh, try to get some sort of learning um, uh, or reps in the OR even if they're not actually in the OR um, and then we've also decreased all of our staff to minimum levels and so um, you know rotating uh, only one um, assistant if necessary in the operating room at a time so Although it's impacted their learning, I think um, when they're there, they're not burnt out or constantly under mental um, anguish thinking about, you know, are they going to are they going to get uh, COVID or are they, you know, gonna how are they going to deal with all these things. So at least when they're there, I think they're focusing on learning. So that's that's been good.
1: It sounds like all three programs are doing, you know, the most they can in such an unprecedented time with really no blueprint for how to do this and no really preparation for how to manage this. Pete, what are you guys doing at Utah?
0: Yeah, I think we're, we've taken a lot of cues from, um, from Jonah's book, you know, our Rothberg, our residency program director, I think has spoken closely with um, a bunch of other residency program directors and we've done similar things. We've created, um, We've created rotations so that the, rota- the residents are one week on, one week off. Um, that's that's involved completely reorganizing the residents, which was a huge job, but I think has really uh, prepared us well. We've done similar things in terms of opening up our conferences so that every divisional conference is open to the whole residency. Um, I've been doing extra lectures for the fellows and for the residents to try and keep us going. And then we've done similar things to what Ben mentioned in terms of Working to to build to build bridges with other institutions so that we can have collaborative conferences, and those kind of things I I tell you just make me feel so great about the community we have in orthopedics that we can all work together in institutions to try and share our education and certainly I'm hopeful that some of those bridges we build will be lasting. What about you guys? What are the remote learning sources we found to be the highest yield? So when you look at a period like this where you have to do more one-on-one learning, Steve, talk to us about some of the things you've been reading. Um, that have really, really helped to to vault this experience and make it the the best that it can be.
3: Yeah, so we've um, we've actually started doing a lot of uh, virtual journal clubs, which I assume a lot of other programs are doing as well. Um, as far as primary sources go, the, the AAOS um, released one of their resident sort of training guides, which has been helpful. Um, you know, still still doing some bullets as well until we exhaust that. Um, but really I would say that the most beneficial thing is has been some of these virtual journal clubs. The attendings at our program have done an incredible job of stepping up and really um, you know, sort of organizing a lot of these different sort of sessions and topic specific there, you know, taking into consideration our, you know, the lecture series, the didactics that we had going during the year and building upon that. So those have been super helpful. We're just getting a series of three or four articles and in, in a variety of specialties. You know, we have our our trauma attendings. Um, you know and, and everyone can join for any you know topic that they would like so it, it's been a you know almost a, a, a nice opportunity to sort of discuss these things with all of these attendings because we don't do it during the year we don't have the time um, you know people are just busy and it's hard to coordinate all that but now we can get you know a lot of residents together with multiple attendings and learn different things and so a, a, as time goes I think we'll you know see which of these resources really, you know, tend to be the most beneficial, um, but at least for me personally, I think that kind of open discussion um, about specific art- articles, especially the newer literature that's coming out, um, it's a great way to, you know, obviously be refreshed about stuff and we're not just, you know, following the same dogma from from years, years past. Um, so I think that's been the most beneficial for me so far.
0: What about you, Ben? You know, We have a lot of listeners, I'm sure there are Shoulder and Elbow Fellows elsewhere. What are the things you've been reading that you feel like, God, I was really glad, I'm I'm really glad I read that. And this has made a nice opportunity to review some primary sources and Shoulder and Elbow Fellows that are most useful for Shoulder and Elbow Fellows.
4: Um, Yeah, I think this has not really changed uh, my primary sources as much. What I've done a lot more of, especially because we've been given the time um, and my attendings have also been given some time as well, has been um, increasing our our research um, efforts and endeavors. And this has allowed me to really um, further explore the um, primary literature in the shoulder and elbow on specific topics like rotator cuffs um, and the natural history of rotator cuff tears, as well as looking at um, uh, glenoid deformities and really understand our <clears throat> the existing literature better than I think I ever would have, just because of the time that's been given to me. So just like Steve had said, um going through journal going through journal articles, just to better quantify and better understand um, what has come before us and led us to our current understanding has been the what I've really been able to do more and more of um, through this time. and I'm actually grateful for that opportunity, although I wish I was doing more surgical cases.
0: Certainly, I thought that was a great part of fellowship is getting a better understanding for why we think we know, what we think we know. What about you, Jonah? What are the things you've been recommending to the to the fellows and residents you work with when they say, "Now I have some more time to read"? What what do you tell them to read? Or
2: what do you tell them to look at? Uh, that, yeah, I think uh, it. You know, obviously, I working in the trauma hospital. Um, we're lucky enough that we have a lot of um, uh, database of presentations from either the OTA or the AO. Where there's a lot of um, continuing webinars, so the 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 number of um, interactive things that have been created or, or sped up as far as, you know, maybe they were planned later on in the year, they've been releasing a lot more content. And so for certainly for fellows, it's been great um, to have those interactions. Just get together with other attendings that are, you know, across the country. So, um, you know, zoom meeting once every week or 2 weeks, and we just kind of throw up some cases and discuss. And it's been surprising how uh, 1, you get to see everybody and make sure everybody's okay, but also uh, two just kind of get talking again and it's really kind of beneficial. And so we've recommended that the fellows do that with other fellows um, uh, around the country, even just kind of show some cases and, and and discuss things about how they've uh, their year has gone. So I think that, and, and I think that would work very well for ASCS fellows as well. Um, and then for residents, it's really about trying to maximize um, any type of interactive learning they can get. So for us, it's really been not only just doing you know, didactic stuff, but also any type of uh, safely done um, uh, simulation uh, training and, and rep training. And and I think that's really uh, that's really what we've been uh, recommending
1: thanks, guys. Certainly, a lot of good resources that I think all of our listeners here, if they're not already employing on their daily lives and can certainly take a look at, especially with journal clubs and virtual meetings and case presentations, and you know intermixing between programs between fellowship programs, residency programs, et cetera. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about this whole pandemic and how things have changed and a lot of what people are talking about in, media and social media is how some of the silver linings of what we're doing and what we're learning are going to stick. You know, for example, we might not have had cross-program case conferences or Zoom journal clubs or things like that, or even telehealth visits with patients. Um, What do you guys think in terms of the positives that are going to stick moving forward once we kind of return back to as normal a clinical and surgical life as we can? Steve, do you think there's going to be any changes in the residency program that are going to stick moving forward when life kind of gets back to normal?
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, and and one of the things, like you said, um, will be the benefit of improved like sort of educational resource. I mean, I think everyone will have a much better understanding of what's out there, what's available. You know, what what are the best ways to use that resource and get the most out of it. Um, in in, in to take it to more of a clinical setting, you know, one thing I've noticed here, at least again, at least at the VA, <clears throat> we've sort of done this gigantic overhaul of, you know, trying to cancel clinic and get patients rescheduled. <clears throat> it's created this um, like second set of eyes, right? We're like relooking at all these different um, workflows and policies and things we have in place, and why our clinics were set up this way, and. You know, it's interesting I, and, and obviously only being a third year resident, my experience is very, very limited. But it's interesting to think that sometimes it takes a big event like this to really shake things up um, to reveal some of these inadequacies and inefficiencies that, that are that are taking place in, in the healthcare system. And, um, you know, moving forward, I think a lot of the improvements that we make or, or, or maybe it's just hitting the reset button in some ways. Um, I think a lot of that will stick and I think we will be a lot more efficient in certain in certain avenues moving forward.
1: Definitely seems to be the case. Ben, what do you think about from your perspective? You know, fellowships only a couple more months and say we were able to start operating again, maybe uh, later at the end of this month or next month, you obviously be very busy with cases. But what do you think from this pandemic that has changed and your program will stick for next year's fellows and subsequent years fellows?
4: I think that there's, um, there's a couple of things that have happened that in my program specifically, I think that, you know, inter- as you mentioned, intercommunication between programs and sharing educational resources may be a little bit more formal than it, than it has been in the past. There's always been uh, that collegiality between institutions, but I think that there, it may be, uh, become more formal, something that at Washington University has really was not in place at all prior to this and is now um, rampant. This is like you had mentioned is telehealth. And I think that there's gonna be many opportunities as we move forward to look at um, the permanency in telehealth, especially for follow-up visits um, and following our patients outside of the office and realizing what visits may not be necessary um, moving forward. There'll also be opportunities to look at how we um, delay care for patients. um, And the effects of that is because we've had a forced delay in um, care for a lot of patients, including rotator cuff um, tears and patients with osteoarthritis, who may have pursued non-operative management that's not even available to them right now. So I think there's a lot of things that that are going on right now um, that will pan out. But I think that overall we're going to hopefully, like you said, become extremely busy and not have a lot of time to implement what we've done so far.
1: That would be great if we could all get very busy very quickly. Uh, Jonah, what are your thoughts, what do you think from, at least from an educational perspective, has really started during this pandemic that we hadn't seen before, you hadn't had before in your program, and it'll stick when our lives start to normalize a little bit as trainers of residents and fellows?
2: Yeah, I think I, I think definitely for us, uh, having or giving access to the entire department for divisional meetings through Zoom, as far as the residents goes. Um, is going to stay going forward I think that's it's sort of an invaluable uh, teaching opportunity you know schedules across different hospitals change and so sometimes there's no reason why uh, residents even though you know typically wouldn't be uh, involved in these meetings um, if they're not doing anything even once we start going again they shouldn't have access to these learning opportunities so I think making everything more accessible um, to everybody, regardless of you know some sort of gated community type mentality, I think that's really going to be uh, important. And I think um, trying to collaborate with across multiple centers now, you know, we can have these ideal ways of doing things, which would be, oh, yeah, everybody in the country. But, it, you know, we know that doesn't work. But forming alliances with other universities that have maybe either similar or slightly different ways of thinking, but, you know, people that get along and so can work together um, and do some combined teaching. I think there's a lot of added value and benefit for the residents and just seeing a slightly different way and, and getting more connections that way. And so I, I think that kind of thing uh, will continue going forward. Um, how much and, and, you know, it depends on a, a little bit on, on, on us, but I think it's going to be important for us to continue uh, pushing it.
0: One of the things that you'd mentioned earlier, Jonah, was that you were you guys were were working on simulation. Rachel, I know you've been a big proponent of simulation. I've done some research in that area. Give us an update. How far are we away from simulation, taking some of the place of hands-on training? And are we at a place now where we can spin that up in, in this kind of situation?
1: That's a great question pete i think at this point we are getting closer but we're just not quite there yet in terms of replicating the reps that our our trainees get in the or for a variety of reasons but certainly something's better than nothing so i think programs and and residents and fellows that have access to simulators should be taking advantage of those one of the challenges is you know for those places and and cities and states that have stay-at-home orders You know, the big question is, is it considered essential? Is it considered non-essential to come into the hospital or the academic facilities to work on a simulator that's in-house? I think there are some really novel virtual reality headsets, uh, especially in general surgery, but also some in orthopedic surgery that are available, but at a high cost. And so it's tough to ask our residents to purchase those individually, but potentially if programs can purchase those and get some uh, home uh, uh, education on how to use those, those are things that our residents and fellows can use in-house, or excuse me, in their home, in their own house, um, similar to arthroscopy box trainers. The big question is, you know, to what benefit will that be? Will it actually translate over to skill sets in the operating room? And we can spend a whole nother podcast talking about simulation and translatability. Um, But again, I think something's better than nothing. The big question is how can we get these available simulators over to our residents and fellows where they're at home, where they don't uh, have to travel into the hospital and potentially put themselves at risk or into the academic facility just to use the simulator. Pete, are you guys doing any simulation at Utah or are you employing that for your residents or fellows right now, or is it some of those similar challenges?
0: Uh, We do, we have Arthrosky simulators that um, are, they're not exactly the newest generation technology because we're investing all of our resources right now in building a large simulation center. Um, And that should be ready by the summertime. And we'll have, I think nine, I think it's nine setups. Um, and is going to be a huge resource to our trainees going forward, but is unfortunately not ready yet. Um, Certainly we did have cadaver facilities and those are part of our laboratory and have been shut down um, because of COVID because of the social distancing recommendations. Um, So we're, we're working on that. I do think that it's the future. I just don't know how far in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges is complying with social distancing while taking advantage of some of the things we do have, you know, in terms of cadaver labs and and industry labs and simulators is tough. Um, It's tough to find that balance of, you know, can we go and travel and do those things or are we not going to be complying with social distancing? So um, certainly a ripe area for R&D for smaller home-based simulators in the future. Um, Getting back, you know, a little bit to our trainees, I'd like to ask our, our panelists as well as our our faculty panelists, what the most difficult part of this pandemic has been from a training perspective. You know, I think just speaking from our fellows' perspective, one of their biggest concerns is volume, especially case volume toward the end um, end of their training career before they move on to their job and some concerns that they have over reps and being ready. So, Steve, what concerns you? What's the vibe in the residency program right now in terms of what's the most concerning thing about this pandemic from your training perspective?
3: Yeah, I, I think uh, everyone would agree. You know, no doubt, it, it's the the loss of the the surgical volume. Um, you know, residency. The, the the goal of residency is to to train a surgeon, and if you're not doing surgery, it's difficult to become a good surgeon. Um, it's as simple as that. And you know, we we've been doing our best to to you know still do the cases that are that meet that threshold as urgent or necessary. Um, and so the limited um, experience we get with that is is better than nothing, but um, that's definitely the biggest problem. Um, you know, for myself as a third year, um, you know, towards the end of the year, I you know you sort of feel like you're starting to, to get the flow and get the hang of things and really you know develop your skills as a surgeon. And it's like hitting a stop sign. Um, you know, you you feel like you've got all this momentum and, and the brakes have just been slammed. So in my mind, there's no doubt it's the it's the loss of volume which. To me, it makes this a very unpredictable situation. Obviously, we, you know, there are ACGME requirements and certain um, number of cases that you have to meet, and, and I don't think that the the true threshold of meeting those numbers will be a problem, especially at um, you know, sort of a lot of the more blue collar programs, ish, as, as our panelists are here from, um, but. Even still, you know, just a few, um, you know, a, a few less cases could make a huge difference down the road. And I think that's going to be a difficult thing to predict what what that will look like down the road. And, and each level in training is going to be different. I mean, I think the Chiefs are probably, and the Fellows, you know, like, like Ben is saying, I mean, they, they, these um, guys and gals are going to have the biggest impacts, um, given that this is their chance to be fully autonomous um, at their level of training. But even at my level in the second years as well, it's really, really hit us hard and Um, it's hard to predict what it'll look like in a few months.
1: Yeah, thanks, Steve. Certainly some concerns there. Ben, how about you from your perspective?
0: Yeah,
4: I I completely agree with what Steve said, and I think that, I mean, again, the biggest concern is is case volume, especially as we're getting towards the end of fellowship and not getting um, the reps um, that we have previously had as well as some of the growing independence that we had been becoming accustomed to i think um just you you miss out on the nuances of of each case as well as the we've now lost those experiences with more rare cases um, such as tendon transfers that we weren't that we wanted to get the volume with i mean i think that all of us at this point could feel comfortable doing as a fellow um, a, a straightforward rotator cuff or even a, a more complex one but we're, we're losing those those very few cases that, that don't come along too often as well. Um, to try to combat that, things that I've done is to just be very attentive to the cases that we do have. We're not as busy, so we're not going through cases as quick of a pace, and it does give you time to take a case, really dissect out the indications for why you're doing uh, that case, going through it in more detail, as well as each step in the case, paying closer attention to Um, why we're positioning the arm this way, uh, making sure that you're capturing as much from each individual case as you can, rather than just through um, the reps that that we've been accustomed to for our education.
1: Yeah, it certainly gives you an opportunity to focus more on the little things that um, when you're doing a bunch of cases in the same day, you may brush over a little bit Jonah, what are your thoughts, you know, in terms of what concerns you about your trainees getting less reps and, and if this goes on for another month or another two months in terms of the lack of elective cases, what are your thoughts and, and what advice might you have for our podcast listeners?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, for us, you know, we know it's at least going to last another six weeks uh, before any type of, uh, of elective cases go on. So that's a huge chunk. Um, especially if you're doing something, you know, shoulder and elbow, Um, obviously, like, like was previously said, you know, standard cases, by this time, most people have a pretty good handle on it, but uh, missing out on all those sort of special, special cases. So um, I think the best thing that I've done um, is uh, anytime I've You know seeing patients in clinic or even just looking back at patients done uh, anything that is out of the ordinary or specifically um, different you know uh, a little bit different or challenging really uh, take fellows through those cases and i often tell fellows you know you have one year to do as much as you you can and want to learn but you also mostly have one year to learn thought process because it's impossible to see every case you know um, just because of the luck of the draw especially for sort of trauma or or complex reconstruction cases and so for us it's really been um going through those 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 harder or you know difficult cases and just going line by line and saying hey this is why we did this this is what this is why i thought this or this and this is how you do that and then even in discussing intraoperatively how we did this or why this was challenging and how we did to overcome it and i think that is um what i would say for fellows who haven't seen certain cases that they really wanted to check off is, is I'm sure those are, the attendings and the mentors have those cases. So just really go go over them with them um, and that would probably be the best way to, to get that.
1: Yeah, great point. I would say, you know, Pete and I are both relatively in the early part of our careers. And I think we would both agree that While in residency and fellowship, you want to get as many reps and as many cases as you can under your belt. And that's, it it seems like each week that's the most important thing. I think we would both agree that in your first couple of years in practice, especially for our young listeners on the podcast, you know, the key is, is knowing the indications, knowing the post operative care, and knowing how to manage the complications. And most importantly, knowing when to not operate. So, um, so just like Jonah was saying, going through some of those cases and the, the more picky ones, the more unique ones, and speaking with your faculty, speaking with your mentors, um, for those, again, those young listeners, those fellows, um, who are ready to go out into their job, to pick the brains. Even if you're not operating right now, use all this time you can to, to soak it up because when you are operating in your career, that's going to be super important.
0: Yeah, I think those are both really fascinating points. Jonah, I think that the point you raise about going through step-by-step step in the operation, why did we do this? Why was this hard? Why was this easy? Is um, It's such an opportunity. It's so, usually, there's such a crush for time, it's hard to do that. Uh, Chris Amon often talks about going through the, the, counter, the counter positives or hypothetical situations. So if you're talking through a case and saying, if this had happened here, what would you have done? Or... How could you have done this differently if if what you had done that worked hadn't worked? And certainly, you can still do those things as thought exercises in conference. One of the things that I think is interesting that Rachel just brought up is about indications. And certainly, I would agree with you that so much of the training is, 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 a, is about learning when to operate and not how to operate. Um, so, Steve, talk a little bit as we've moved towards telehealth clinics. Are you working still in clinics with attendings? Have you guys figured out a way to make... To make a telehealth clinic also an educational opportunity
3: yeah we have we've um you know sort of done done that the obvious thing which is as soon as we see an interesting x-ray or an interesting case we kind of all powwow and do it together so we've got our our bullpen set up um you know specifically to keep our our six six feet of distancing um and then as soon as someone gets an interesting case we all kind of like huddle around the central computer but with distancing maintained it's kind of funny but um yeah, we, we've we've been able to to transition most of the VA clinics to telehealth. Um, the tough thing has been that some of our orthopedic um, PAS, the physicians' assistants, have been pulled into the ER. So we've now absorbed their you know their full time clinic only PAS, and we've now absorbed that total volume. So you know th- there have been some growing pains and logistical issues, but um, we've had good success with the with the telemedicine visit. And you know it's interesting, and I think. Um, at least all the providers I've spoken with that have done telehealth, it's been surprising at how appreciative the patients are. Um, You know, for us, it's almost like we assume like, yeah, we have to call you guys. Like if you have an appointment, like, you know, we're going to call you. Of course, this is not, we're not like, you know, this is our job. We're not doing a favor, but the patients are so, so appreciative. And um, you know, just to talk on the phone. And even if you're not able to do much, right. Like you can't, an injection or whatever surgery obviously but um you know just having a conversation i think goes a long way and um so it's a very beneficial for the patient and at the same time we still are seeing those interesting cases when they do come up and as much as we can we try to get as much education you know educational benefit uh, out of it as possible
0: and how about you ben now that now that washu's transitioned to telemedicine is as chamberlain or keener or yamaguchi or or a lemur doing their clinic, you know, through telehealth, how, how are you participating in that to try and still get some learning out of clinic? Are, are you guys working together or um, has that been more solo?
4: Yeah, this is, uh, this has actually been a more solo part of the transition. The uh, WashU has been pretty strict about who's involved in clinics and who's not um, just to try to decrease transmission as much as possible. Um, our attendings have taken an avid role and uh, with telehealth Um, to try to decrease the number of inpatient visits Um, but that and I have taken that over to the VA so it's given me an opportunity to really sort of try to figure out how to effectively manage my clinic in these difficult times and maybe develop some skills for the future um, identifying those patients that I need to see um, trying to identify actual important visits for post-operative patients and then making those phone calls and then as Steve had said those patients um, are extraordinarily grateful for you to do a very simple thing, which is pick up the phone and talk to them, just to sort of see how they're doing and check in on them. I think it goes a long way to maintaining the patient-physician uh, relationship um, and making them feel valued.
0: And then, what about you, Jonah? Is you, if you're if you're doing telemedicine clinics, do you do you have a resident who's on the line listening silently? Do you have a resident standing next to you that can watch you interact? you know, via the computer? How are you doing
2: that? Uh, yeah, similar to uh, WashU, we sort of limited uh, who's in clinic just because we want to decrease um, potential transmission. And we've also sort of uh, kept telehealth relatively um, limited just because we've rolled it out very recently. And um, it's still sort of not ready for prime time as far as the numbers go. Um, So, you know, I I go back to a little bit what I said before is is even though I'm seeing a patient maybe in telehealth um, at the end of the the day uh, going through the entire list of clinic, I think uh, try to find one or two unique things, either from what I'd expect in clinic as far as physical exam or even x-rays if we're looking at them because some of our patients have been able to get x-rays locally um and and really just explain sort of do a wrap up with the whole clinic you know instead of doing teaching case by case which is what we usually do sort of in an in an organic or, or granular way this uh really just looking through the entire list saying okay this patient had this you know during the exam usually is what i've been looking for this or so what i asked on you know over the phone or or in video was you know this 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 to try to um, come up with the, the answer that I'd usually be able to examine. And, um, and, you know, if we could get an x-ray, I would have looked for this and these are the type of things that we would do. And this is why we have this post-op protocol for this patient. And so really trying to get one or two, or maybe even sometimes three or four learning points per patient, just really going over the list with the resident. And that can be done, you know, from a distance. And so, um, although, you know, I think clinic is, is really underrated, uh, with, with learners, as far as, Uh, You know, learning um, during residency, right? Uh, We always have our residents and fellows sort of their least favorite part of the week is going to clinic. But when you go back and think about it during fellowship, that's really where you learn how to indicate patients, when to take patients back to the operating room, if they need to go back, if they have a complication, when do they not need, you know, when can you just wait and and they'll get better. And so that that learning goes away. And so trying to explain that back to them. Uh, is really, I think, what um, uh, the best way to to get some learning out of this.
1: Thanks so much, guys. And for our last question to kind of end this podcast on a a positive note, a bright note, what's one thing for each of you that's been positive during this unprecedented pandemic? Um, It can be personal, it can be professional, but what's, what's one positive thing? Steve, how about you? Let's start there.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think this this whole experience, um, at least for me, has created a lot of introspection about different different aspects of life. I mean, about, you know, obviously in medicine, we're going through, you know, with the example of clinic patients, you know, which ones were, were, were essential in the first place, like who really needs to come and who doesn't. And that same, that can sort of be an analogous to the rest of, rest of our lives and, you know, my day-to-day activities, what things, you know, was I doing? that I never really needed to do, or um, you know, was I being safe just in regards to basic uh, public health stuff in general? I mean, there, there's been a ton of introspection and sort of recalibrating um, about day to day life, and I think ultimately, you know, obviously the whole situation is very difficult and um, there's a lot of tragedy with it. But I think ultimately there will be be a lot of good that comes out of it um, for for those reasons. So it's it, it's a uh, yeah created some internal dialogue for myself, which I think ultimately will be a big benefit.
1: All right, well, if I see you talking to yourself when you're back on service, I'll know why. Uh, ben, how about you, from your perspective, what's one positive thing that you can take away from uh, from this pandemic?
4: Yeah, I think it's. Uh, this is certainly a very difficult time, but I would say that the it has been amazing to watch the department, um, the medical school and the, the hospital system come together to try to solve problems throughout um, this pandemic. We've lost a lot of what we're used to and a lot of what um, Made us enjoy the work, but the um, there have been uh, m- many people who have gone out of their way to try to offer their services, and we've all sort of offered our different medical experience um, to try to fill in roles where we um, where it's needed and where it would be helpful. That has, in St. Louis, that hasn't um, become necessary yet for orthopedists to start covering the ICUs, but to to watch the um, the whole department mobilize. Um, and come together with other medical departments has, I think, been very impressive.
1: Absolutely. And Jonah, how about you? Something positive that you've noticed or experienced for you personally that you can take away from this situation?
2: Yeah, I think one of the uh, best things that I've seen, and now they may regret it, but is showing how quickly we can deploy uh, solutions and changes into our hospital. Now, we've always sort of gone up against administrators, and I'm sure this is the same thing everywhere, but, um, you know, always telling us to wait or telling us we need more you know, time to think. And, and in reality, when everybody's on the same page, things can get deployed very quickly. So I think for me, that's been an extreme, extremely positive thing, because, you know, that going forward now, they won't be able to use the same excuse. Um, with regards to that saying, listen, hey, listen, you know, without any great cost, we were able to, you know, organize all these things and everybody got on the same page and everybody was able to change stuff very quickly. And so um, I think that'll be good to, to, to remember going forward that just because um, we may be hitting a wall administratively, um, we can just refer back to this and say, you know what, when everybody was on the same page, we can get stuff done. And so hopefully that'll help us continue going forward
1: that is definitely a silver lining uh, for sure for anyone, both in academics, private, hospital-based, et cetera. Pete, what about you guys, or are you personally, anything positive that um, you've noticed in the last month or so that's um, come out of this otherwise devastating situation?
0: I think one thing that's really come out positive that um, certainly is dependent on your personal situation, but for me personally, it's it's given me an opportunity to spend more more time in the evening with my kids, and I'm still at work during the day, working on research and doing telehealth, but, you know, I used to be gone in the evenings, oftentimes doing cases or with research meetings, and all those things are moved during the day, and it's been really nice to be able to look home every night and see my kids. And I think I've heard that over and over again from the people in my department, that this is provided us with such a nice little hiatus to spend some time with our families and to remember what's really important here. What about you, Rach?
1: Yeah, I would echo, I think, what everyone has said in terms of the positives with our programs and with our hospital systems. Um, And for me, it's really echoing what you just said. It's being able to achieve a better sense of balance. Um, I'm one of those people that very similar to, I'm sure, everyone on this call and many of our listeners where you work during the day and then you come home and then you also work at night. And this has given me an opportunity to have some balance, you know, have uh, dedicated time to work out, to have some time with my pup. Uh, Murphy, who joins on conference calls sometimes and to do research that's not after 10 hours of surgery at night, um, but actually just during the day and then kind of having the evenings free. So, you know, I'm grateful that um, I have that time and and am able to introspect a little bit like what Steve was saying and and potentially achieve a better sense of balance. And I hope I can keep with some of that when we start to get back to probably not the same type of life we had before, but a more normal uh, surgeon lifestyle. And on that note, um, I'd like to thank all of our guests for being on this podcast. That's really all the time we have today. We want to make sure everyone out there listening does their part, continues to wash their hands, and take care of your family, friends, and community. While this podcast is, of course, focused on our trainees and our faculty and the educational and surgical experiences that have been impacted by this virus, we do want to send our best wishes to those directly impacted by COVID-19, patients, family members, communities, et cetera, And we want to send our gratitude to our frontline healthcare workers and everyone else really in society working to keep things functioning, especially at grocery stores and truck drivers and restaurants, et cetera. So we want to remind you, unless you need to be at work, stay at home, flatten the curve. Thank you so much to our guests. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe. For Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.